and read of this wonderful story again. No doubt you have read this passage over and over again, um, maybe even in recent days in our Advent devotionals, which reach their conclusion tomorrow. Um, but these are great words, and there's always something for us here to rejoice in. Luke 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. <clears throat> a lot of exciting things happen on Christmas Eves. It was the night I asked Claire if she'd go out with me as a 16-year-old. And she replied with all the excitement that she could muster. And I quote, I can't think of a reason why not. <laughs> she made up for that a few years later when on Christmas Eve she agreed to marry me with a little bit more enthusiasm. It was on Christmas Eve that Libya and later Laos gained their independence. It was Christmas Eve when Henry Ford finished his first petrol engine and when the World War I Christmas truce began, as the sounds of explosions in the trenches were replaced by carol singing, and it was Christmas Eve 1968 that Apollo 8 orbited the moon 10 times live on TV, if you believe it. The day before Christmas is the most exciting day of the year for a lot of people, particularly kids, but grown-ups too, and for us as a church, it's great to meet today and tomorrow to fill our minds and hearts with the true reason for joy at Christmas. So unless you love civil bureaucracy and human geography statistics, you'll be wondering what's less exciting than studying a census. From 1801, we've had censuses every 10 years. And on this Christmas Eve, we're going to Think about a Roman census. Now, it's obviously not the Roman census that provides the joy of Christmas, but it is very significant because even the seemingly mundane was part of God's amazing plan of salvation. God is sovereign over the big events and the small, the biggest rulers and the smallest civilians. That's good news for all of us because it proves that God cares about every single one of us and every single detail of our lives. There isn't anything that happens to us that God isn't in and over. And so it was with the birth of his son. The first three verses that we read tell us of the Caesar who would be nothing. The next two will tell us of the nobodies who would be blessed. And then finally, the child who would be king. So the Caesar who would be nothing. God often works through seemingly ordinary means to further his purposes. Saul went looking for his father's donkeys and found a kingdom. 
With a simple rod, Moses confounded Egypt's finest magicians. A little sling and five smooth stones in the hands of a shepherd boy defeated a blasphemous giant. Luke demonstrates how a routine Roman census was part of God's plan of salvation. Now, we tend to skim over these first three verses, but Luke writes almost as many words about the census as he does about the birth. Registered is repeated four times, so there must be a good reason for drawing our attention to this detail. This census was for taxation. It was to give Caesar Augustus a way to expand his power and influence. Luke is a historian, and he wants to include all the details about God's providence and how it was worked out in the large and small things. He's recording, quite literally, the most important birth in all of human history. So he includes everything. (coughs) He sets this humble birth in a global context. It's a local birth with worldwide impact. It was an event not registered on many people's calendars, but it changed history forever. Next slide, please, Rodney. Yeah, you can't see that too well, but this is the image of the Roman Empire. On that tiny strip of land, you see Israel near this purple arrow. And the purple arrow is pointing to Jerusalem. Bethlehem was a smaller dot underneath that. Luke says the census was for all the world. He means the Roman Empire at that time. Historians say by that time when Christ was born, a traveler could go from Jerusalem to Lisbon or from Egypt to London and they would still not leave the empire. This was a huge undertaking and it would encompass a vast population. But Luke focuses on just one couple. Well, actually, there are five characters in his little seven-verse drama. And the first one is Caesar Augustus, also known as Octavian. He was the most powerful human being on earth the day before Jesus was born. He was Julius Caesar's grandnephew and Caesar... Julius Caesar, that is, listed him in his will as the heir and his adopted son. He was born 63 BC, the same year that Rome took over Israel, and Octavian was the first one to be named emperor of the Roman Empire. They gave Octavian this name Augustus because it means exalted or majestic, a title that had obvious implications of divinity, And emperor worship really took off with this Caesar. The Roman Senate even called him the son of a god. But Luke reveals to us that the most powerful human being was being used by God, his creator, the real sovereign, to bring about events that God had pre-planned for the birth of the true son of God. So Caesar thought, His census would increase his influence. But it was all part of God's plan to bring Jesus' parents to Bethlehem to fulfill prophecy. Caesar thought he was responsible for bringing the golden age of peace to Rome for 250 years. But Luke 
has a little bit of irony here, I think. It's not the great and powerful leader of the grand Roman Empire who brings peace or would rule in majesty and splendor forever. It's the infant born in a manger in the sleepy little town of Bethlehem. He was the prince of peace. Down in verse 14, you see the angels pronouncing this, peace. And Luke loves this theme of peace. It only occurs two or three times in Matthew and Mark, but 13 times in Luke. And Jesus is always the source of peace. Because the peace of God is not brought by decree through an empire, but by deliverance through Emmanuel. We often look in all the wrong places for peace. It only comes through the Savior born in Bethlehem. In his book, Luke for You, which we have in our library, Mike McKinley observes this downward spiral of power and influence in verses 1 to 7. And it helps us see how God is sovereign over the great and small. Because if you notice, in verse 1, we have Augustus. He is the most powerful man in the world. Then we have Quirinius, the regional governor of Syria, still a big name. Verse 3, we have Joseph, a poor carpenter. Verse 4, Mary, an unmarried pregnant teenager. And then we come to Jesus, who is a baby sleeping in an animal feeding trough in a society that discarded unwanted babies like apple cores at the side of the road. In that moment, he must have seemed about the least powerful person in the world. But the one seemingly at the bottom of the downward spiral of power and influence is the focus of all the Gospels. He is the focus of all the Scriptures. He is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He's this Prince of Peace. How often do you think about Caesar Augustus? I doubt very much, if ever, in your life. Now, that goes against a recent trend. I don't know if you saw it a couple of months ago. It seemed to take over the internet for a while. The question was asked, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? And there has been a 750% increase in mentions of the Roman Empire since. It's even become the Financial Times' word of the year. Apparently, men think about the Roman Empire a lot, even daily. And it's said that women hardly think about it at all. Now, I have serious doubts about any research that's conducted through TikTok trends, even if they have 2 billion views. And I'd say, whilst we're probably subconsciously influenced by the Roman Empire, we don't actually think about it very much. The proud Caesars became nothing the humble child became the exalted king. And more on that later. But the second characters in this drama are the nobodies who would be blessed in verses 4 and 5. Of course, we know there are no nobodies from God's perspective. But humanly speaking, it would be harder to find anyone more suitable for this candidate of nobody than Joseph and Mary. What little we do know about Joseph is enough to tell us he was a poor man with little to no status in society, humanly speaking, a nobody. 
We know that he was from Nazareth, which was literally off the map in the time of Jesus. It is never mentioned in any other ancient sources apart from scripture. Bible historians reckon that Nazareth was a tiny agricultural village with poor people living in it, and it was pretty much unknown in the rest of the empire. So it was the drum quinn or the Lisbian of its day. Joseph was a carpenter, not a lucrative business in a small village, not a lot of people needing their doors mended probably. And another indication of his poverty comes from my first nativity fact check. How did Mary and Joseph get to Bethlehem? On a donkey, right? Well, maybe, maybe not. There's no mention of a donkey for them to travel on. That could be another sign of their poverty. It was the wealthy who traveled on animals in the first century. It could have cost them between two months and two years worth of wages, depending on the animal's condition. And even in the one mention of Jesus traveling on a donkey in Luke, we're told that he borrowed it. So maybe Mary and Joseph had to borrow a donkey, or maybe they had to walk 90 miles over a few days. Either way, they were poor, really poor. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Mary and we, we understood how lowly her condition was, an unmarried teenager with a, a bump that was getting harder and harder to hide, no doubt generated plenty of suspicious glances and whispers from local gossips. So Joseph's poor, Mary's poor, and an even less remarkable group in the first century Israel are mentioned in the next section, the shepherds. We'll hear a bit more about them tomorrow. These were the characters that I always wanted to be in the school nativity, but I didn't realize them what I know now. They were considered unclean, nobodies, outcasts. People tended to avoid them, but not God, because one of Luke's big reasons for writing his gospel is to show that Jesus is the savior of all kinds of people. And he has a particular care for the humble and lowly. The first century's most unnoticed people could dare to look into the face of God in human flesh and believe that he was their savior too. And by faith, so can we because there are no nobodies in God's kingdom. Low self-esteem is a huge barrier for many Christians. It's a barrier because it prevents us from believing that what God thinks about us matters infinitely more than what we feel about ourselves. It's a barrier because if you despise yourself, then you haven't really grasped forgiveness or the grace of God. And it's a barrier because if you think you are too unworthy for God, you're not likely to serve him. But if you are a Christian, you really have been forgiven and restored, and so you've been made new in Christ. You really are considered by God as if you have his son's righteousness surrounding you like clothing. And so you're not a nobody in God's sight. You are precious and useful and you've been called according to his purpose. And so you and I have a purpose, just like Mary and Joseph and the lowly shepherds. And our purpose is very similar to theirs. 
We are called to treasure up in our hearts the wonderful things that God has done, meditate upon them, and then sing of them and speak of them to others. We're to spread the good news of Christmas to the weary world that so desperately needs it so that many more will rejoice in God's greatest deliverance. Now, however they got there, the travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem was a long trek, and it would have been extremely challenging for a pregnant teenager. Joseph's going because he's doing his civic duty, and he probably takes Mary with him to protect her from shame and the judgmental whispers back home. Our last census in 2021 was the the first one to be done mostly online, but they didn't have that luxury. I'm sure they would have preferred it, but God wanted this couple in Bethlehem, and Luke is very specific. He says, this was the city of David called Bethlehem. There's something important about this place. At the Men's Fellowship Christmas dinner, we considered the significance of Bethlehem throughout the Bible. It's mentioned in Genesis, in Judges, in Ruth, in Samuel, and Micah. And it's associated with Israel's misery and spiritual need. It's associated with her priests and kings, shepherds, prophets, and humility. There's already a lot of significance in this village But Luke wants his readers to be thinking of King David here. Why? Because King David was promised that one of his descendants would be the everlasting king of an everlasting kingdom and God would be his father. That descendant is the son given on whose shoulders the government would sit, who would reign on David's throne forever and ever. And that is why Luke is so meticulous in detailing that Joseph and Mary went to the city of David called Bethlehem. Did you know that the birthplace of our Savior won't be lit up to celebrate Christmas this year? Well, that's because it's now the little Muslim town of Bethlehem. Its population was over 80% Christian in 1950. Now it's 10%. And the Muslim majority have said they're taking down all the Christmas decorations that have been up for years. That's a shame, but what matters to us is that no false religion, no Roman tyrant, no bloodthirsty Herod, or all the combined forces of hell could stop God's promise being fulfilled. God said, your Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, And so he brought that about. How? By using the most amazing means, by moving the mightiest leader of the mightiest world empire to conduct a census. God exalted the humble and brought the proud low. He moves the hearts and minds of kings to do his bidding because he's always in control of all things. His plan and providence move on every single day to his desired ends. And part of that plan, believe it or not, includes you and I. I'll say it again. There are no nobodies in God's kingdom. Every Christian was bought and paid for with the most precious present, the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. And if he poured out his blood to redeem you, 
why would you ever think that you're of little worth to him? Research this year and last year, especially amongst younger generations, has shown that self-loathing is rising. We who know the extent of Christ's suffering to save sinful men, women, and children need to share the hope of the gospel this Christmas with people who feel this way about themselves. But equally important is our witness to those who have a more Caesar-like self-esteem, the self-righteous and proud who are content with their sinful condition. And this group can be harder to reach with the gospel because the good news starts with the bad news, the reality that all of us are needy and helpless without Christ, that the pride will be brought low if they don't confess their need of a savior. But witness we must, and Christmas gives us a special opportunity to do so, doesn't it? People are already to some degree aware that the reason that they're off work and they're eating and drinking more than usual and they're exchanging gifts and they're hearing carols, if not singing them, is something to do with a Christian celebration. People are aware of that to some degree. Could you pray for an opportunity to speak to maybe your colleagues back in work when you go back? Tell them how you celebrated as a Christian and the far more meaningful, lasting joy that you had. More joy than their fleeting joy when they opened their gifts and their bottles. Or could you pray for the Holy Spirit to give you an opportunity to share the hope you have even tomorrow around the dinner table with unsaved family and friends. People need to know that there are no nobodies in God's eyes, but everybody needs the savior. And the child that was born at Christmas was a king and still is king. And one day every knee will bow before him. So what about finally this child who would be king? Verse six, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. If you've been counting down the days on your calendar, you've either eaten the last chocolate or maybe there's one more to go, usually the biggest one. The big day is tomorrow, of course, but for Mary and Joseph... It was a very different countdown that was complete. And like that couple, a few of us here have a heightened awareness of baby due dates. Verse 6 literally says that Mary's days were completed. And if the estimate is true, then Claire and I have been given 37 days from now until Claire's days will be completed. And God willing, she'll give birth to an adorable little Houston. Fear, anxiety joy, wonder, anticipation, excitement, tiredness, pain. These are all feelings that are associated with childbirth and pregnancy. And there's a lot of things to consider. Name, nursery, nappies, neonatal follow-ups, just to name a few. And we know the name wasn't an issue for Mary and Joseph. God selected it and they accepted it. But picking suitable bedding is another important baby consideration. And it's one that I'm sure Claire has thought of more than I have. I still barely know the difference between a cot and a crib or a, a Moses basket and a, 
bassinet, which isn't a woodwind instrument, I'm told. But you do tend to consider these things, don't you, in the run-up to the birth. You think, where's the baby going to sleep? What was Jesus' first crib? An animal's feeding trough. Now, we hear this year after year, but just think about that. His was the most important birth in human history. No one born since has or will ever be as important, but he had no place to lay his head. So the animal feed was chucked out of the manger, and the one in whom all things hold together was placed in that manger lovingly by his mum. Mary tenderly wrapped him in swaddling cloths, placing these to protect the limbs of the one who would later heal the limbs of the paralyzed. And Luke says that this is her firstborn son. And I doubt that Luke's saying that just to imply that Mary will have more children. Because firstborn son is a really loaded theological term. The rest of the New Testament fills out the details and the significance of this word because Jesus is called the firstborn among many brothers, meaning spiritual brothers and sisters. He's called the firstborn of all creation. He's called the firstborn from the dead. And in Psalm 89, 27, the Lord says of David, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. The greater fulfillment was not for David, but his greater son, because Caesar would not be the greatest and highest king of all the earth. Jesus would be. And so whilst Luke did write a few verses on Caesar, the so-called most exalted man in the whole earth, the one who was truly exalted above all, not a son of God, but the son of God, he's the central focus of all of scripture and countless books written since. And yet such a humble birth And so I want to insert my second nativity fact check here, because sometimes we have this picture in our minds of a frantic Joseph banging the doors of every inn in Bethlehem, and Mary is panting through increasingly painful contractions, and labor is imminent. But the word that Luke uses isn't usually translated in. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, there's another word used which does mean in, and that's where the, the man is taken. But here it's the word that's more commonly used for the guest room or the living quarters. And we know that because later Jesus instructed his disciples to make arrangements for the Last Supper. And he says, ask the master of the house, where is the guest room? That's the same word used here in verse 7. Israelite houses often had little living quarters in the base for their animals to live in because it would have been dangerous to leave the animals outside. They would have been stolen quite often. And so they kept them indoors. Now, it it could have been an inn, but there wouldn't have been very many inns in Bethlehem anyway. It's such a small village. You're asking, why does all this matter? Well, one, because it's important to get scripture right. There's enough drama in this story without speculation, and it can be better to leave the unknowns unknown. What we do know is what God wants us to know. Because if there was an inn, as I said, there was probably only one or two. And everything in this story, every detail points to humility and poverty 
and obscurity. These details all show us together and individually that he who was rich for our sake became poor so that we by his poverty might become rich. Because what seems insignificant in man's eyes is not so in God's. Caesars would come and go, kings, presidents, and prime ministers do too. All of them are appointed by God and dethroned by him when their pride swells up too much. Nobody's so-called come and go as well. But they're no less important than the most powerful leaders in the world to the one who made them in his own image. God's son was sent to us to be the savior for us. And it didn't matter what our status or income or nationality or anything else. The uncreated God of all creation entered into his creation in human flesh with no fanfare, with no headlines in the Jerusalem Journal or the Bethlehem Bee or whatever they had. That's because he didn't come to be served. He came to serve. And we know throughout Jesus' life, that's exactly what he did. He grew up to serve people, to bind up their wounds, to befriend the outcast, to restore the broken, to confound the wisest, and to teach the simple. We see how undignified Jesus' birth was, but we also know how much more undignified, how much more unfair and undeserved his death would be a few decades later because he came not just to serve but to give his life as a ransom for many and you can be among the many today as well because the greatest gift that you'll ever receive at any time of the year is the gift of salvation total forgiveness for all of your sins past present and future and freedom from the hold that they have on you total peace with God Call out to him this Christmas Eve to save you. And there is no greater joy than knowing the Christ of Christmas as your friend, as your Prince of Peace and King of Kings. The birth of Jesus Christ, the Son of God and the Son of Man, was the greatest event to take place between the creation of the cosmos and the cross at Calvary. We as a church, we always want to honor and praise God for his incredible providence over all of history, but also every single detail of our lives. So Christmas Eve is an exciting day for the church because we're anticipating the day fixed on our calendar as the day that we celebrate most the birth of our King. So this year, let's marvel at God's intervention in the history of Adam's fallen race, where God showed his sovereignty over the big events and the small, the biggest kings and, and the smallest civilians, which is good news for us because it proves that God does care about every single one of us. It's good news for those who love Christmas. It's also good news for those who don't love Christmas and find it lonely and difficult because it reminds us that Jesus cares about all of us and he sympathizes with us all. He came down to lift us up 
and the weary world has many reasons to rejoice. And so we rejoice with it. Let's bow our heads for a moment as I just want to pray with the words of a fourth century Christmas prayer. Blessed be the child who made Bethlehem glad on this day. And glory to your coming, which made us alive again. Glory to the hidden gardener of our minds. His seed fell on our ground and made our minds rich. Glory to the silence who spoke by his voice. To the hidden one whose son was made known. To the great one whose son descended and was small. To the living one whose son was made to die. Glory to the good one whom the sons of the evil one rejected, to the son of the just one whom the sons of wickedness crucified, and glory to the one who set us free and was bound for us all. Blessed be him whom our mouth cannot adequately praise. His gift is too great for the skill of orators to tell. Praise him as we may, it is too little. And since it is useless to be silent and constrain ourselves, may our feebleness excuse whatever praise we can sing 